uh, coming to the end of another day of practice together and uh, appreciating the effort that everyone's put in. It's not easy. I think that might we might all agree on that. But um, talking to someone earlier today, the first retreat, and feeling quite uh, deeply challenged by just being with oneself, being with themselves, without uh, much distraction. Uh, I think this is something we can all relate to, that actually just containing this energy we call ourself, this experience we call ourself, the body and mind process, just containing that within the silence, within the contemplation within the attention is, is, is deeply challenging. You know, when, throughout uh, one day one can reflect that we go through many different kinds of states, many different kinds of feelings. Sometimes moments of insight and clarity, fluidity, and peacefulness, Something we haven't quite understood suddenly clicks and we think, oh yeah, that's, I just seen that clearly, more clearly than before. Or something that we've seen before and we've forgotten and we see it again and we think, oh yeah. Moments when the body feels light, maybe. Blissful, even. And in other moments when it changes and we can experience various forms of, of dukkha, of pain, of longing, of anxiety, despair, of boredom, depression, uncertainty, aversion. And other moments where the mind is just bouncing off the wall. Not here for a minute, maybe not here all day. Just planning the future. Telling endless stories to ourselves, fantasizing about God knows what. (laughs) The mind, the realm of mind, ultimately insubstantial, yet powerful enough. Ultimately something we can't really capture, and yet manifesting in a million and one different appearances within the course of just one day. And it's feeling, in many ways, very personal. And then we wonder why life can be a bit confusing. One minute we're feeling clear and blissful, and the next minute we feel agitated and, and oppressed or obstructed. One of the capacities we have in the human realm is the reflective mind, the capacity of the mind to reflect on its own experience, on its own nature. 
which we've been developing that through this mindfulness. It's not, this practice is not one where we're just instantly reacting to our experience, but we're beginning to reflect on it, to allow it to be reflected. And it's this ability to reflect that is the, the introduces the possibility of, uh, of understanding, understanding our experience. Not all beings have that possibility. Not all beings in the human realm have much of that capacity. Quite often it's just uh, life can be a process of just reactivity, reacting sometimes quite blindly to pleasure and pain, fear and desire. And of course, when we stop, we begin to feel those ancient habits pushing and pulling. Those ancient habits of reactivity in the heart. Finding it very difficult just to be stable with what is. Tendency to judge how it is, to not like or to like or to want or to not want how it is. In other kingdoms of nature, it's very hard for there to be any reflective capacity, often it's just uh, instinctual. <clears throat> motivated by instinct, survival, self-preservation. And uh, we can operate very much in that plane too, just instinctually reacting. So this beginning of the, the ability to reflect on our experience is the opening beginning to open more into this aspect, this dimension of, of, of the Buddha, that which is a, that dimension of awareness, of awakenedness, of clarity. And, and within that, a certain choice, how we respond. And to help develop this reflective capacity, first of all, we have to meet our experience. And this, this is the challenging aspect to really this, this whole development of attention we've been bringing attention to the mind-body process to neutral, maybe fairly neutral objects sound or breath maybe not that disturbing but inevitably various forms of obstruction arise and inevitably we have to bring our attention to that which is painful, that which is difficult. When we, when we experience various forms of, uh, of pain or suffering or difficulty, we can take it very personally. Something wrong with me, my fault, that I'm feeling this way, that I'm feeling aversion, that I'm hating everyone. <laughs> Uh, that I'm not liking it. You can take that that feeling very personally, or my fault that I'm fantasizing about this, that, and the other. That I'm depressed. And then the various forms of of suffering that we experience have this sense of it being very very personal somehow. 
So we tend to react, we tend to find that difficult to open to because there's a lot of judgment there. It shouldn't be like this. It should be peaceful, it should be blissful, it should be happy. You've been meditating now for two days. It should be plain sailing from here on. But it's quite a relief when the Buddha pointed to, he said, actually, this is inherent within the sphere of the Dharma realm, within the sphere of nature. This is inherent. This is, the the Buddha said, the first noble truth. This experience of dukkha, meeting dukkha. The unsatisfactory nature, or that sometimes translated as that which is difficult to bear, or that which is lacking in spaciousness, or that which is oppressive, or that which is just a sense of dis-ease, not peaceful not calm, not blissful, contracted. So this attention that we've uh, been developing, the breath, sensation, it's building a certain capacity, a certain strength, a certain capacity to receive experience of dukkha if it arises. If it's not there, then then great. But within the day, some form of dukkha will arise. So rather than meeting that with reactivity, we can start to meet it just with attention. More accurately receiving how it is, without meeting it, instead of meeting it with uh, projecting it out, Something wrong with the people around, something wrong with the center, something wrong with the teachers, that might be true. <laughs> Probably is. <laughs> Nothing's perfect. <laughs> and keeping it in perspective, this project where we can project, I mean, sometimes there is something wrong with everything, but, uh, but we're taking that sense to the source, actually, if we're, if we're, Probably enlightened, there's probably no problem really, but uh, just taking it back to the source of this tendency of the mind to project the sense of dukkha and, and translate that into something wrong out there, something wrong with me, perhaps we project it onto ourselves, or perhaps we just become a martyr, there's no one that suffers just like me, no one understands my special pain. Perhaps we just deny it, push it away, and get swallowed up by it, overwhelmed. So it's a very particular kind of capacity to bring that quality of sati or mindfulness to meet. Very directly this experience of dis-ease or the painful or the obstructed. That's the first aspect is the first part is meeting that experience. The second dimension is to allow it in a way to and the Buddha taught the first noble truth, he made the statement, there is this experience of dukkha. He didn't say this world sometimes it's translated this world's just suffering. It's a bad bad joke. 
which is a, a pretty negative uh, translation, but it wasn't, the world is what it is. Quite, quite blissful actually, if one's able to relate clearly. It's quite okay. It is what it is. But it's because of our misunderstanding, our not, uh, our, our distorted relationship with how it is, our, through delusion, through expectation, through unrealistic, an unrealistic relationship that we have this experience of dukkha. So he said, this is, there is this experience of dukkha. And the second, each of the truths, each of the Four Noble Truths has three aspects. The first aspect, this truth is just a pure statement. There is this experience in life. Nothing personally wrong with you. Nothing wrong with the world. It's just there. This is like saying the sky is blue or the flowers bloom in spring or the leaves are green. It's a statement. It's just how it is. I mean, like saying, why is it like that? It's a bit like saying, well, he does give causes, but there's a certain dimension that it's just that's how it is. There is this experience of dukkha. And the second aspect of this truth is this experience needs to be understood. And the third aspect, this has been understood, but uh, we'll just stay with the first two aspects for now. the meeting of it. We've all met it today in one form or another. And the second aspect is quite interesting because it's actually almost, it's saying feel it. Stop trying to push it away. Stop trying to justify it. Stop trying to deny it. Stop trying to squirm around it. Stop trying to rise above it. Crawl under it. Just meet it and feel it. This understood, the way of understanding is is actually Allowing, that's it. If we don't have much samadhi, if we don't much have strength of attention, then actually that's a very difficult thing to do because we just get overwhelmed. And so the other strategies we perhaps we need. And that's okay. So we have to know where we're at, really. But sometimes we can't avoid it anymore. It's just there. And on a retreat situation, more often than not, we can't avoid it anymore. We don't have the distractions. We have we have the direct experience of this noble first noble truth, <coughs> the ennobling truth, that which ultimately ennobles us as we come to terms and start to work more creatively rather than reactively with this experience of, of dukkha. Because ultimately it becomes a very profound teacher for us. A profound teacher because when we meet this experience, we can't just meet it with bullshit or with willpower or just trying to charm our way through. <laughs> we have to actually negotiate this experience and it, and it demands from us. This experience of dukkha demands that we grow, demands that we mature, demands that we meet it, perhaps with qualities we haven't yet developed. That's why these so-called obstructions or hindrances that we, we meet along the way are, are really um, are not, they appear as obstructions, but ultimately they, they are there in a way to help us grow. And they're not going to move out the way until they've done their job. 
and sometimes they're not going to move out of the way for quite a while. <laughs> and all the bargaining and all the willpower in the world is not going to do it. And they can help, that can help. But this is a whole realm of skillful means that you start to develop. So what are the, some of these obstructions that we start to meet in our path of, of investigating the peaceful? What obstructs us from really being here? It's fully here. The mind connected, being present. Well, we might have noticed today the sense of just wanting and not wanting, wanting. Mind wanting something that's not here, maybe wanting to be a bit more peaceful, wanting the thoughts to go, wanting what is that jhana now Kibisara has been talking about? I wouldn't mind that. Getting more peaceful, more peaceful, first jhana, no, it's first jhana, and then some big memory comes up, some unpleasant memory about something. And then we go into not wanting, wanting that peace and not wanting not wanting that unpainful memory, or that painful sensation, or that painful feeling of anxiety. So we create, we create dukkha, we create the sense of struggle. Being separated from that which we love, or those that we love, coming on retreat. We, we leave behind the familiar loved ones, familiar house, familiar place, familiar country. A lot of longing that we can experience. We plan for months to come on the retreat. Desiring to come on the retreat, we get here, and what do we find? Can't wait to go. (laughs) The madness of the mind. Longing to get here, we got here, and then longing to, to be somewhere else. You know, we believe that thought, then we just spend the whole time waiting for the end. And that's what life can be, waiting for the end, or waiting for something. We don't even know quite what we're waiting for. So when we start to see that movement, and not be so, this is what they call the movement of being fooled by uh, ignorance, avicca, not really knowing, not really seeing clearly that movement of their wanting or not wanting. We just see it, we can just see it for what it is. We don't necessarily move with it. Being separated from the loved, being with the unloved, being with that which we don't find easy, being with people that aren't our our great buddies, we can sort of commune with at heart level, have a heart connection with each other. To sit here in silence with someone breathing difficultly, breathing heavily next to me or shifting around or too long or you don't like where I'm staying, it's so noisy or too hot, too cold, whatever. Not being with a sense of not, of being with that which we don't like or don't want. Those that we don't want to be with, dukkha, the feeling of, of irritation, agitation in the heart.
So these are these are the first two, if you like, classical what they call nirvana or that which hinders this ability just to be peaceful. The Buddha talked about desire and aversion. Constantly the sense of moving away from being here. Desire is constantly moving, pointing to something else outside that we something over there that we feel we need. And aversion is somehow subtly pushing away how it is here and now. That's just the first two. I think that's enough for a lifetime. (laughs) But as we bring attention into the moment with this practice of samatha, samadhi, training of attention, what is here becomes more revealed to us. The very nature of attention. What is apparent becomes more revealed. And then it's, it is the job, uh, the, the sort of the, the long haul, if you like, where it's helpful to have a big picture on beginning to work and transform and engage with these, uh, this sense of being obstructed. sense of uh, dullness of the heart or mind, heaviness, sometimes uh, not wanting to be here in in a way that we just go a bit dull or or numb or literally moving into a kind of foggy state, something that comes up in the meditative process quite a lot. Connected with sometimes this deep sense almost of not wanting to exist, finding it difficult just to to be here. And the mind just somehow clicks out, the fog rolls in, we're not very present. And this, this is called a certain dullness, heaviness, torpidness of mind that we meet, we meet during the day. I meet it every morning when the bell goes, and, oh, It's a very deep, can be a very deep, um, they call sankhara, a very deep tendency of the heart, of the mind. Which is a bit connected to this aversion, this sense of, 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 it's actually difficult, it's challenging to be aware, to be present. There's something in this that just wants to, to abdicate check out. So we, we feel that during the day sometimes, it's not wanting to bother somehow. Or we can just feel it as a sense of just physical heaviness, sleepiness. Sometimes in the, in the monastery, people would come in all day and often with an enormous sense of uh, idealism and enthusiasm, a lot of energy, a lot of willpower, desire to be enlightened, all the sort of good things that get you into a monastery. And you'd find, you know, people like all night sitting, fasting, uh, all the things Kitty Sarah was talking about the monk earlier today, ascetic practices, eating one meal a day, a whole bunch of practices. On top of everything else, getting up early, learning, chanting, doing the whole thing, enormous kind of energy. 
a lot of will, but not always that balanced sometimes, especially as Westerners. And sometimes you find a few years down the road the will has run out, the enthusiasm has dulled, and the idealism has definitely gone out the window. And you see rows of monks and nuns just (laughs) descending into dullness. And that's, that's difficult. I've seen sometimes when I was in the monastery, I've seen sometimes some people spending years just kind of going dull. It's a very difficult um, hindrance. It's a very dif- difficult obstruction to, to work with. In a way, the, the desire or the, the heat of wanting, the pain of aversion is more tangible. But there's a sort of the mind that goes dull, foggy, the sense of, of this, this uh, deep-seated sense of not really wanting to exist somehow. It's, it's more difficult to, to touch, because before you know it, one's kind of gone, one's faded out. So this, this, uh, this, experience often demands that we start to meet it with a different, we can't just meet it with will, can't will our way through that kind of a state, we have to meet it with a different kind of response. Often a lot of patience, a lot of time, sometimes these things take their their own time to to burn through, to be purified. And in that process one develops a lot of strength, just meeting some of these obstructions sometimes over and over again. Sometimes just having to accept, the metta, just having to accept, this is how it is. Having to be humble, patient and humble. We work through some of the more difficult tendencies, latent tendencies of the mind the heart. Opposite feeling of of that is a kind of restlessness, agitation. Can't settle anywhere, can't settle here, can't settle anywhere we go. Constantly feeling a sense of worry and anxiety in the mind and and agitation. And this can come up quite strongly on a retreat sometimes. This container, just learning first of all to meet it, to contain it. Sometimes we don't have to, you know, we might feel we have to do something to overcome these difficult obstructions, but really there is something very magical and mysterious about just mixing awareness and attention with these things, these states that seem so obstructive to us. Just bringing, the very fact of bringing attention and mixing, there's some light, there's some awareness, it's not just reactivity, starts to to transform and process and change. We have to have a certain faith in that. I think, you know, at first, because we, we might want an instant, quick fix, or we're so, we're so unused to enduring sometimes the difficult, we're used to distracting the mind so easily, that we don't really have much depth of faith in the transformative power of awareness and attention in it, within itself. So we just do a bit at a time, do a bit at a time. But it does have that, that 
potential, amazingly so. In the last uh, classical Yavarana, it's called uh, Vitikicha, which means a kind of, well, it's translated more as doubt, which is uh, yeah, it's, it's connected a bit with this kind of restless, a, a mind that really undermines itself. It's not the doubt, it's not the profound doubt. It's a difficult word, doubt, because it actually, doubt's quite important in terms of a mature process of doubt turns into inquiry to really look deeply. The inquiry, this sort of, but there's this sense of doubt is really a, the sense of not really being able to have faith in what we're doing. So the mind is almost constantly undercutting itself. Not being able to carry anything through. We start uh, sitting here, maybe in a sitting, and then mind starts to doubt. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe I shouldn't be watching my breath. Maybe, maybe I should watch. Maybe I should bring my attention to my third eye. No, I don't know. But then again, this other teacher said one should focus on the crown chakra. That's where it really happened. No, but then that Burmese master said you should watch the rise and the fall of the abdomen. I mean, that's really where you get centered, down there in the horror. You sit there for Well, maybe I should just try a Christian prayer. <coughs> I, don't know, I think I'm really a Tibetan Buddhist. I don't know about these Theravadans. They're selfish, really. I'm, I'm really a bodhisattva. I don't know, I think I'll go and check out that Sufi thing. I wonder what I was in a past life. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should concentrate on the heart chakra. That's really where it's at. That's it. Maybe there's some pramayama in between. Yeah. So... <laughs> You can see that the mind is, uh, I mean, maybe that's all true, but it's a different relationship. When you believe all those thoughts, then it's quite exhausting. When it comes up, doesn't it? We start to, to bring attention, and then that sort of sense of doubt comes up. And if you notice, doubt's very much connected with the sense of self, the sense of me, of me doing something, getting somewhere. It's not quite, again, here. It's a very subtle movement of the mind to really see because the nature of doubt is it always convinces us that it's not quite, it's, it's a kind of a sense of not, not quite right somehow, maybe something else. And when we see, when we see it as just doubt, as doubt, it's a different relationship. Ah, there's doubt. That's incredible. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, it doesn't sound like much actually, but it's, um, it's a huge shift in perspective. And we're just right here. You don't have to perhaps go off to the Sufi temple after all. But it is a very, a very, 
as working, I feel I've got a lot of respect for working with this particular aspect of mind because there are some things that are worthy of doubting. And in fact, that, that is an, an important capacity of mind to, to, to begin to engage with, to begin to work with consciously. And it's not just blind reactivity in a doubt, but a conscious inquiring, looking, a sense of, in a way, can doubt can really start to be a deep investigation into what do we really trust, what is really trustworthy. And that's a very profound area. Where, where is our faith? What, what is our sense of faith? What is our sense of trust? We might want to trust what other people say, what we read in the books, what the teachers say. We really want perhaps someone else to tell us what to trust, who to trust. But ultimately we're going to have to learn to really listen deeply into our own heart. To sense to sense what is trustworthy. So this is a a journey we're going on, quite a mysterious journey in some ways, what what pulls us onward. Definitely not the doubting, worrying, anxious, fearful, slightly crazed mind, there's something quite deep. Um, perhaps it's the connected with our sense of faith, something very deep that moves us in this journey. So then that's very beautiful, it moves us in spite of ourselves, in spite of the enormous resistance we have all the way. It moves us towards the light, towards the truth, towards enlightenment, even though we Perhaps fear that more than anything. One uh, great master, Nisargadatta, uh, said, "We resist the whole way, <laughs> scream and holler, all the way to enlightenment." There's something very um, profound about reflecting on those before that have made this journey. The Buddha's life, in a way, is like an archetypal journey that we all go through. But sometimes people think, oh, the Buddha did that, he's someone from the past. But I quite like what Ken Wilber says. He said, actually, the Buddha and the Christ are beings of the future. We think they're in the past, but they're actually saying, this is what our potential is. We might not believe that in this point in time and space, but they're really pointing to what our potential is unfolding within future time. They're not beings of the past. They kind of, in a way, play out this kind of archetypal journey that we all inevitably have to go through at some point or another. The inevitable process of awakening from the slumbers of Avidya, or the ancient dark movement, if you like, within the heart that blinds us, obstructs us from this uh, 
true abiding within the awakened heart. The Buddha called ignorance. You can't get a beginning to it, you can't get an end to it. It's just like saying the green the, the grass is green, it's just there. It's something something that uh, is there, it has its purpose. It's there to awaken us. So as much as we move to the light we're going to meet what you might call the dark or the obstructive, and it has its place. And rather than reacting blindly or feeling it's wrong or we're wrong, it's part of what is really our truest and most profound teacher. So in seeing that, we can perhaps see our suffering is rather, not rather a, something to despise, but it's a gift. It's a, a gift that we can receive with our attention. It's here to to help us awaken. <laughs>